Thank you, Connie. We're glad you're here with us today at Our Lord's. Lots of good things going on. Sometimes Sunday we don't have enough time to highlight everything. One of our key values here at Our Lord's is we're uh, people of spirit and truth. And so we have lively worship. We're going to have the Lord's Supper at the end of our service together. But something we really value is life in the scriptures. And so each week we look at a passage together and we let it speak to us. Why is it sometimes that we have an either-or mindset. It's either you are one of those churches that does worship and spiritual gifts and hearing from God and all these things, or you're one of those scripture churches. We're committed here to both and. And really, the early it's nothing new. It's actually really old. That's how the early church was. They were people of the book people of the scriptures, and each time they gather together, they would read the scriptures together, talk about it, live into it, and so we are committed to that here at our Lord's. We're back in 1 Corinthians, so if you want to look in 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 13, we are going to look at what the Lord wants to say to us through 1 Corinthians. As we do each time we look at the scriptures, we want to make sure that we understand it in its historical context. What what was God saying to them 2,000 years ago? Sometimes churches will leave it at that. Go home, and that's it. We believe that the word of the Lord is for us today in 2019. So we do both of those things. We look, what, what was God saying to the people at Corinth, to this wild church there in, in Greece? But what, what is God saying to us? I want to make a little parenthetical comment here. Jesus himself is the word. The Bible points to him. Luke 24 says that all of the scriptures point to this glorious, magnificent person, Jesus. So really, as we look at the scriptures, we expect him to move in the room. He's here with us today in worship, and he'll continue to be with us because he is the living word. And really, the scriptures are a means to interacting with him. We believe that he's here. And so we don't focus on the Bible. The Bible is kind of like an icon or a window through which we look and encounter the resurrected Jesus. So this morning we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 4, 1 to 13. And this passage is interesting because Paul at times is like a broken record. And it's because they don't seem to get the message. So here in chapter 4 there are going to be some themes that we've heard and he's going to explain what true apostolic ministry is. Now, we're going to see in this passage that this isn't just Paul describing his own apostolic ministry. Mike's going to talk about this next week in chapter 4, verse 16. Paul is going to say, imitate me. Imitate me, church. And so what Paul is doing, what he's illustrating is for the church to practice and imitate. So I want us to make sure as we look at this this morning, Paul is describing his life, his person as an apostle, but it's not like he's some kind of spiritual elite. He calls the whole church at Corinth to follow in his steps. Actually, later in the letter, he'll say, I'm following Jesus, and I'm calling you to follow me as I follow him. So this is the word of the Lord for us 
as a church this morning. To understand apostolic ministry is to live as apostolic people. I'm going to try to convince you of that this morning. But you, as a follower of Jesus, walk in the apostolic authority. Jesus has sent you. He's filled you with his spirit. He's anointed you. And he says, go into the world like Ashley and Yaku were talking about. Bring the kingdom. You are an apostolic people. So with that in mind, let's look at 1 Corinthians 4, 1 to 13. I'm just going to point out three things in this text, but I want to read it first. And it's up on a slide. You can bring your Bible if you like. And I'm reading from the New Revised Standard Version. Think of, this, think of us in this way, as servants of Christ and stewards of God's mysteries. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. I do not even judge myself. I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive commendation from God. I have applied this to Apollos and myself for your benefit, brothers and sisters, so that you may learn through us the meaning of the saying, nothing beyond what is written, so that none of you will be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if it were not a gift? I know this is a long passage, but in the early church, they would read entire chapters. So we're going to read on, all right? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Quite apart from us, you've become kings. little sarcasm here. Indeed, I wish that you had become kings so that we might be kings with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all as though sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to mortals. We are fools for the sake of Christ, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we are hungry and thirsty. We are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless. And we grow weary from the work of our hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we speak kindly. We have become like the rubbish of the world, the dregs of all things to this very day. How's that for a resume? Apostolic resume here. So the first thing I want to point out that this text says is that Paul and some of his colleagues who were apostles are servants and stewards. And so again, as the word of the Lord for us in 2019, as an apostolic people, we too are servants and stewards. What does he mean by this? Paul is continuing to build his argument here. The preceding three chapters, he's talked about the message of the cross because they keep forgetting. They want to move away from the cross because it's not very comfortable. And so Paul keeps holding up the cross, the message of the crucified Jesus, and he says this is the essence of what it means to be a Christian. So he's going to raise that again here. He also reminds them, you are the temple of God. You're the very dwelling place 
of God the Holy Spirit. And thirdly, he keeps reminding them what true Christian leaders are. They've been infiltrated at different times by pretenders, by people who want to tickle their ears and give them a message. And so in this section right here, verses one to five, he says, we are servants of Christ and stewards. Interesting word pictures here woven throughout this passage. When Paul talks about a servant, he's actually using a Greek term that means under rower. So in his day, people would take long journeys on boats, and the lower level of the deck is where the under rowers were. And so Paul is telling them, you would like to have an exalted, powerful, influential person. But you know what? I'm Christ's under rower. I'm down on the lower level, man in the oars, and I'm doing what the captain says. So Paul just keeps chipping away and saying, I am a servant. I'm a servant of Christ, I belong to him, and I'm a servant for Christ. I serve on his behalf. And he's showing here what Jesus himself taught in John 13. The greater the anointing, the bigger the towel. I shared that with you, that the Lord had spoken to me. When the Lord lays a mantle of authority or leadership on any of us, it's also a towel to wash feet. I want to read a passage here because Paul probably had this in mind in other passages where Jesus himself, the servant of all servants, says this. John 13, 14 through 15. He says, so if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have set you an example that you should do as I have done to you. So Paul is saying here, as an apostle, And as apostolic people, prepare to wash feet. Serve one another. Promote one another. Be clothed with humility. Because as he's going to say here in a minute, it's all a gift. We don't deserve any of it. We don't earn it at all. I love it because Jesus and Paul subvert the typical mindset, the typical perspective. What does the world tell us now? If you're a powerful leader, whether it's in politics or whatever field it is, It's all about you. Look powerful. Wear the right things. Be impressive. Go to the right school. Look good. Develop your CV, your resume. And Paul says, that's not how it works. It's actually the opposite. And so as apostolic people, my friends, we're people of resistance. This passage says we do it differently. We want the power of God. Do you want anointing? Do you want the power of God operating in your life? I don't think we ease back from that. It's just a matter of doing it the way that Paul and Jesus display it. They illustrate it. We want the power. We want the anointing. We want leadership. But we realize the more you get, the lower we are to serve, to wash more feet powerful here. Another word that he uses here is that we're stewards. We don't think about this. This is such a peculiar word in our mindset. He says we as apostles are stewards of God's mysteries. What in the world does he mean by this? As I was looking at the passage this week, I kept thinking of the Louvre. Some of you may have been to the Louvre in Paris. It's uh, 783,000 square feet of treasure. And I looked up, there's 38,000 invaluable objects in the Louvre there in Paris. 
in France, this museum of creativity and all. And what Paul is saying in a sense is that we have access to God's Louvre. We're stewards of the mysteries of God. Man, we're so caught in the day-to-day. I'm pathetic. I'm dealing with these things. If you only knew. And you know what? You are a steward of God's mysteries. Whoa. The greatest mystery is that God gets involved in human history in the person of Jesus. That is the mystery of all mysteries that's fully known to the entire universe. God becomes human, dies on the cross, is raised from the dead, pours out the Holy Spirit, human history is changed. That's the greatest mystery of all in human history, and you know it. It's been revealed to you, and you're a steward of that mystery. Man, I find myself kicking dirt oftentimes. Just shocks, woe is me. Lord, if you only knew. And this week he was saying, son, you're a steward of the mysteries of who I am and what I'm doing in the earth. Church, you have access to the Louvre and now you get to invite other people. Go and explore the vast treasures of who God is, what God does, how God takes people like us, fills us with the spirit and changes history. Paul loves this word, mystery, And he talked about it in chapter 2, verse 1. I don't think we think about it enough. Oftentimes in the West, we're more inclined to talk about nice, clean arguments. Why are you a Christian? Well, let me explain it to you logically. And I just want to share this morning that I think passages like this emphasize the importance of mystery. And truly, a mystery means something that's been disclosed. So it's not like we have hidden esoteric secrets. That's not it at all. It's God making these things fully known, but making room for mystery. I've shared with some of you that I went through a season of almost a decade of deep doubt. Amanda and I were deconstructed in about a decade. It was as if I was standing there and my faith, the faith that I had, was slipping through my hands. I couldn't do anything about it. Here I was teaching theology and running a pre-seminary program, and I was just getting leveled. And I found myself scared and sad and angry. We had some things going on personally in our lives, and Amanda and I were angry with God. And so I found myself wondering about things that oftentimes Christians might be ashamed of. I'm ashamed to be doubting. I'm ashamed to be struggling. And you know what? This is happening in culture today. I just have heard over the last few weeks the story some of you have about Joshua Harris, the famous, the well-known author, the evangelical who wrote books on dating, and then Marty Sampson, this worship leader at Hillsong. These guys are renouncing their faith publicly. Anybody heard about it? I wish that we could say, hey, let's have a conversation about mystery. It may be that you've been in circles where that's not discussed. There's no room for doubt. There's no room for questioning. There's no room. Really, who in here understands the Trinity? Anybody got that one figured out? Jerry, you got that figured out? I don't think we have that figured out. You, you shouldn't. If you think you do, we can talk later. 
the essence of our faith is great mystery. And so I wish that Marty and Joshua and these guys could open up and realize that perhaps they're in a season of their lives. And there's room for that. Even if you're barely hanging on by a tiny bit of your fingernail, it's okay. I've been there. I've been there. Truthfully, I'm kind of holding back a little bit because it was so embarrassing and so dark and I was ashamed. How can I be denying and, and wrestling through these things that I just kind of took for granted before? When I say denying, you know what I mean. I'm in deep, deep struggle about God and God's ways. And so I think the story's not over with Marty and with Joshua. And I think the Lord has a different perspective and the Lord's love and grace and persistence with them and with all of us is powerful. When I was in my own deconstruction time in the desert, barely hanging on by a fingernail at times, I'm the only one in the room, right? No one else in here has dealt with doubt, with these kinds of things, frustration with God. I came across a little book called The Orthodox Way, and I read a page, it's actually page 16 in this book, and it was like a lightning bolt that went right into my mind and heart. Can I read a little bit of it? I mean, this is maybe one of the best paragraphs I've ever read on doubt from a Christian perspective. I'll try to make through it. Because uh, it just undoes me every time. But this is a, a guy named Callistus Ware, an Eastern Orthodox brother. And he says this, Faith is not logical certainty, but a personal relationship with God. Because this personal relationship is as yet incomplete in each of us, it needs continually to develop further. It is by no means impossible for faith to coexist with doubt. The two are not mutually exclusive. Perhaps there are some who by God's grace retain throughout their life the faith of a child, enabling them to accept without question all that they have been taught. But for most of us, living in the West today, such an attitude is simply not possible. You with me on this? We have to make our own cry. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. For very many of us, this will remain our constant prayer right up to the very gates of death. Yet doubt does not in itself signify lack of faith. Do you hear that? It may actually mean the opposite, that our faith is alive and growing. For faith implies not complacency, but taking risks, not shutting ourselves off from the unknown, but advancing boldly to meet it. Now listen to how he ends here. For the act of faith is a constant dialogue with doubt. That is good news. The church is full of people wrestling in the secret place of their heart with doubt and with questions. And you know what I think the Lord says? I'm not sweating it. It's okay. Most of you are. You're wrestling. You're struggling. You're growing. You're not stagnant. Somewhere along the way in the desert, and I grabbed onto this book like a little lantern in the dark, and I was like, ah, can this be true? Please, please. Somewhere along the way, I realized 
that doubt and question can actually be good. It can be a positive thing. And so my prayer is, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And a big part of this, I think, my friends, is to make room for mystery. Is this making sense? I just, I feel like I'm letting you in on some, some things in my own soul. And I wish that at some point it could just be resolved. Man, I could read a few books. I could pray. I could go to a sozo. And man, can you just deal with this doubt and the questioning and heal me from the deconstruction? And I just sense Jesus saying, come on, come on, just keep going. And the beauty of this is faith is not about rationality, having it all worked out. What does Callistus Ware say? Faith is about relationship. So I can hang on to him and realize actually he's got a hold of me. Somewhere along the way, he said, Brock, it's really not about you clutching me. I've got a hold of you, my friend. And I was like, ah, oh, thank you, Jesus. You will bring me through. I think you're probably a better leader than I am follower. Aren't you? You are so good and faithful. So you can tell, I, I feel this pretty deeply. And I think dealing especially with young people today, we've got to make room for them to ask questions. It may even mean that they take the Apostles' Creed out and say, I don't know if I believe any of it. And if we freak out and say, well, you've got to read this book on apologetics, and we miss the point. Perhaps they're growing. Perhaps God is doing something deep in the recesses of their heart so that when they're 40, 50, 60 years old, they've worked through it when they're 20. So the truth is truth. God is a great apologist. I mean, I, I tell you what, right now, if someone said, Brock, I just don't know. And I've read some really compelling atheists and agnostics. But you know what? The love of God has taken root in my heart. The presence of God comes over me, sometimes in my place of doubt. And I'm like, ah, oh, you are real. You are so good. This isn't neurological firing off in my brain. This is the creator. Amen? All right, I better move on here. So the second thing, in verses six through seven, Paul talks about them as apostles and us as an apostolic people being conduits of grace. Let's just look at this. Just want to make a couple of comments here. Paul is mentioning several things here, and we can't comment on everything, but there's this statement he makes in verses six and seven. What does this mean? That you may learn through us the meaning of the saying, nothing beyond what is written. Different interpreters say various things about this, but I think that what Paul is saying here, learn through our example how to live according to Scripture. That's it. And don't try to go beyond that. Now, bear with me. This could fly right by your mind right now, right by your heart. But if you will let this get a hold of you, there's something here that Paul is conveying that if we can catch it, it's incredibly powerful. Don't try to go beyond what Scripture teaches. Why is it that we have what I call an outdo spirit? Man, you fasted one day, I've done two. Man, you, you read your Bible for 30 minutes, I've done an hour. Oh, Esther, you prayed for this extended time, I've outdone you, sister. 
I mean, there's just something innate in us, and that's what really Paul is getting at here. He talks about it in Colossians 2. He says, we are so free as people, the grace of God. We don't have to keep rules. We don't have to actually fast. We don't have to keep festivals. We are liberated and freed by the grace of God. But on the other hand, that energizes us in powerful ways. So Paul is talking to a church that had the outdo spirit. They were competitive with one another. They were constantly saying, we are truly spiritual and you're not. And Paul is putting his finger right on that nerve and say, he's saying, live according to the scriptures. Follow Jesus. There's a clarity and simplicity of that. And so Paul is operating as a conduit of grace. And then he reminds the church, what do you have that you did not receive? Brothers and sisters, what do you have that you did not receive? It's all a gift, all of this. Your salvation's a gift. Your maturing in Jesus is a gift. The formation of Christ in you is a gift. We don't have any room for bragging. A third point that Paul makes here, and this one's a lot of fun and makes you really comfortable, and it's Christ-like fools. We've heard this before, haven't we? Paul likes this word about divine foolishness. In the face of the world's wisdom, Paul keeps holding up what it means for him as an apostle sent into the world to plant churches, to bring the kingdom, and he turns to them and he says, are you ready to be a fool for Jesus? And he uses maybe what we could call apostolic sarcasm, and he lays out a number of things, doesn't he? If you look at verses 8 through 13, man, does he... Pour it on thick. Sanctified sarcasm, maybe? I don't know. But he's saying at verse 8, already you have all that you want. Hey, church, you're rich. Apart from us, you're kings. And so he is laying out one thing after another. And he's saying, this is how you feel. And you're puffed up with pride. And he says, but let me explain actually what we are as those sent in the name and the power of Jesus. Look at what he says. He says, we are last of all. We are fools for Christ. We are weak. We are dishonored. And so he's kind of contrasting or juxtaposing his perspective here with theirs. And it's powerful. He goes on to explain a few things here. And I just want to point out these few words. And it kind of prepares us actually to come and partake of the Lord's Supper, to come to the table. But he uses some words here that he takes on for himself, but he's actually pointing to Jesus, the one that he's following. Look at some of the language he uses here. At verse 10, he says, we the apostles are fools for Christ. At verse nine, before that, he says, we're a spectacle. The word is actually related to theater. He said, we're actually a theater of comedy that the Lord has opened up right here for everyone to laugh at. He said, we're a laughing stock. And then he goes on as if they're not getting it, and he's picking apart their pride, their smugness, and he describes what it's like to be a fool for Christ. Verse 10, he says, we're weak. You're held in honor. We're in disrepute to the present hour. We're hungry. We're thirsty. We're poorly clothed. We're beaten. We're homeless, and we grow weary. Now, this kind of passage right here could lead us to do one of two things. We could either say, ah, Paul, you're pretty hardcore. 
man, I sure am glad you wrote that for the first century church. I'm sure glad that I don't have to deal with that at all. Anybody else? I read a passage like that and I go, man, those pathetic Corinthians. I am so glad that was a word for that historical context and I don't have any of that in me. So we can have that mindset or we could also have a martyr complex and we could read a passage like that. Gordon Fee, a commentator, talks about it and he says we could just beat ourselves up. Aren't we pitiful and pathetic? What we need to do is situate somewhere in between there and realize that the Lord is highlighting things in us and he's rooting out self-reliance and pride and calling us to follow the crucified, resurrected Jesus. I want to end with this here. He uses some language in these verses that's astounding. He says, as apostles, we are scum. We are the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world. Now again, we don't want a martyr complex. We're not self-loathing here at all. But Paul realizes he has been entrusted with the mysteries of God. He's seated with Christ in the heavenly places. He is a son of the living God. He will rule and reign over angels in the age to come. And yet he describes himself as scum of the earth and as garbage. He's trying to offend the minds of the Corinthians to reveal their hearts. The language that's used here, the garbage of the world, the ancient Greeks would actually take someone and throw them overboard in the middle of a storm because they thought that Poseidon and the other gods were mad. And so what they would do is identify on the boat who is the biggest scumbag on the boat. Let's throw them overboard to appease the gods. And Paul says, you know what, Corinth? That's who we are. We're the one that gets thrown overboard. And you know what? Christ himself, as the crucified one, was the scum, was the garbage. And so Paul has a radical message here that he's calling the church to. And he's explaining what his apostolic ministry is. And so this is a good word. The grace of God. We're stewards of the mysteries of God. We're filled with the Holy Spirit, and yet there's something in our mindset. If we start from there, you know what? I follow a crucified Savior. I don't have to pretend to be anything. Then the power of God's released. So Lord, we prepare ourselves for the Lord's table. We turn to you. Thank you for your word.